All right. Does everybody have one of these? One of the scripture handouts? All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. So tonight, as we are continuing our series on the church. We're going to talk about discipleship and growth. All right? Discipleship and growth. And where I want to start tonight is I want to start with a biblical theology of growth. All right? What, what does the Bible say about this topic to help shape our thinking about it? Because when we think about growth, we're often thinking more about numerical size Right. We're typically thinking, is our church growing? That means, do we have more people coming? That's usually the way that our minds, that's usually the direction we tend to go in. But the scriptures point us in a different direction. All right. When the scriptures talk about growth, they're not necessarily talking about numerical growth. They're talking about something different. That's not to say that large churches are automatically unbiblical, but it is to say that large churches are not automatically biblical. One of the things that people try to use as an argument point when you call out a megachurch pastor for false theology is, well, he must be doing something right. He's got lots of people that go to his church. You hear that a lot, people talking about Joel Osteen. Well, he must be doing something right. He's got 20,000 people going to his church. Well, there's a lot of people in the world that want to hear what they want to hear. And so the size of the church does not necessarily mean that it is biblical or healthy. All right. So what we're going to do, like I said, is we're going to walk through a biblical theology of growth that's going to help us to understand how we should think about growth as a Christian. All right. So right at the very beginning of the Bible, God commands the creatures to multiply. It says God, Genesis 1 and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So right at the very beginning, God encourages growth, specifically numeric growth, right? A few verses later, he gives that same command and more to mankind in Genesis 1 And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so we see this growth, uh, this numerical growth kind of expanded a little bit for mankind specifically saying you have dominion over all things. All right. A little while later in Genesis, after destroying the vast majority of the world in judgment with the flood, the first thing that God commands the sons of Noah to do is this same command. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. All right. So here in Genesis, we see God giving this command to increase in number and He does that as well with Abraham. He promises Abraham that his descendants would increase in number. When Israel goes into Egypt, they are shown to be blessed by their multiplication. And even when they are taken into exile, we see this again in Jeremiah 29, 6. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. All right, so as you're looking at the history of Israel, one of the things that you see is this numeric growth, both commanded by God and shown by God to be a blessing, right? 
Numeric growth indicates that God is blessing you. In fact, one of the ways that God encourages righteousness in the Old Testament is by the abundance of blessings that he pours out in growth. Psalm 92, 12, and 13, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. All right, so God says, if you are righteous, you will grow. You will have abundance. You will be blessed in this way. So God is linking these things together, specifically in regards to righteousness. And then in Proverbs, God gives instructions on how we can grow. We can increase strength by increasing wisdom, which we can also do by associating with the wise. So Proverbs 24, 5, a wise man is full of strength and a man of knowledge enhances his might. And then Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm, right? So not only does God encourage numeric growth, not only does God encourage the growth of righteousness, but he also encourages growth in wisdom. He encourages growth in wisdom, and he gives instruction on how to pursue that, all right? That helps us to set the right kind of growth apart from the wrong kind of growth, Because God's intention in growth is not strictly numeric growth. His intention is growth is a certain kind of growth, growth in righteousness, growth in wisdom, that numeric growth apart from those things are not the kind of growth that God has in mind. Okay? In Psalm 49, uh, 16 and 17, Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Right? So we see here that just because you have an increase of the physical things of this life, whether we're talking about children, whether we're talking about riches, or whatever it may be, those are not necessarily signs that this person is especially righteous or wise. And it's not necessarily something that is given from God as a marker of blessing. Because when you die, you carry nothing away, right? So just because increase is there does not necessarily mean that that increase is from God in that sense. Does that make sense? All right. We're also told that the kingdom of heaven will grow. Isaiah 9, 7 Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All right. So so here again, we see growth, but specifically growth of his kingdom. So when you link this back to the earlier statements of growth that we see in Genesis, specifically in regards to mankind and in regards to the increase of Abraham's line in particular, right? We, we can rightly recognize those as increases of the kingdom of God, not just increases in number, okay? Jesus elaborates on how his kingdom will grow in Matthew 13, 32. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and become a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. All right. So the kingdom of God grows in a way that takes it from what seems to be the smallest of seeds, but it grows into the largest plant. All right. 
And, although, and though the seed did fall to the ground and die, the seed being Jesus, the kingdom that he ushered in did exactly that, as we're told repeatedly in the book of Acts. Acts 6, 1 and 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, then in verse 7, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And in Acts 19, 20, uh, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. All right, we find numerical growth of God's people in both the Old and the New Testaments. But the growth that is emphasized and urged in the New Testament is of a different sort. You see in these passages in Acts that the increase in number coincides with what? An increase in the word. The word is what is prevailing, and that is bringing about the increase in number. So it's not just about big numbers. It's about true conversion, right? That's the idea. It says that here in seven, right? The word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So they're specifically talking about an increase of God's word leading to an increase of conversion and true conversion, not just big numbers. All right, we see this fleshed out again in Ephesians four fifteen and 16, um, where we see that this idea of, of larger church is not necessarily a healthier, healthier church because it's the, it's, there's a certain kind of growth that we're specifying here. So Ephesians four fifteen and 16, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is growth that we see in the New Testament when we talk about the church. This is the kind of growth. We're growing up into the head versus growing in number. How does this kind of growth happen? Well, Colossians 2.19, the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So this kind of growth only comes from the Lord. It's not the preacher who causes the growth of the church. It's not the programs that cause the growth of the church. It is only from God. God may use a preacher. He may use programs, but it's not the preacher's doing. And Paul reminds the Corinthians of this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. All right, so again, true spiritual growth is not something that we can manufacture on our own. There's no magic words. There's no key phrases. It has to come from the Lord. Jesus himself emphasizes this truth, teaching that growth happens outside of our efforts. That doesn't mean that we should be lazy, but we should remember that ultimately it is not dependent upon us. In Mark 4, 27, speaking of a farmer, he says he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed, the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. So we have some, some gentlemen in here who grow some stuff at their house. They have some, they have some crops that they, that some small crops that they manage. And you can 
till the soil and you can water the seeds and you can make sure everything's just right. But at the end of the day, can you make it grow? No, you cannot. You go to bed, you go to sleep, you wake up the next day, it grew. Right? Because it's not coming from you. It's the same thing with our spiritual growth and the growth of the church. That's why Paul doesn't give the glory for the growth of the Thessalonians to them, but instead thanks God in 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So Paul recognizes this in his letter to the, to his second letter to the Thessalonians and tells them, hey, we ought to be thanking God for your growth. He doesn't say, hey, guys, you're doing a great job growing. He says we should thank God for your growth. He's the reason why this is happening. That's why when Paul desires growth in a church, he prays for them. He doesn't send them 10 keys to spiritual growth. He prays for them. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Notice he, say, he has this prayer for them in 1 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians, he was thanking God for their growth. So apparently, his prayer had some effect. Uh, Paul also prayed for the church in Colossae. Uh, in Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So again, when Paul wants growth in a church, in a group of people, he prays for them. That is not to say that we play no role in our growth. In fact, Paul frames it as a command at the end of 2 Peter in verse, chapter 3, verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there is a part that we play, but how do we do that? Well, in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, it says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, there are things that we should be doing in an effort to grow spiritually. That's what Paul lays out here. All right, so your faith should be virtuous, your virtue should come from knowledge, and your knowledge should be born out of self-control, and on and on and on. All right? And it all comes from this Knowledge, right? They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where does that knowledge come from? Well, in 1 Peter 2, 2 through 5, I read part of this, this, I preached on part of this this morning. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we see this knowledge of the Lord coming from the word of God. All right, so all of this to say 
that spiritual growth is a solidly biblical concept. It goes as far back as creation itself. And so this is something that is good and right for us to strive for. Make sure that when we talk about not focusing on growth, that you recognize that we're talking about numerical growth and not spiritual growth. All right, we should care much less about having 150 people in church on Sunday morning as we care about having 40 people who are growing in their sanctification. Okay, that's the idea here. Okay, so what does this actually look like? All right, if we, if we do want to grow spiritually as individuals and as a church, how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, there are some things that the church can do to spur spiritual growth. All right? There's some ways that the church spurs growth. The first way that the church spurs growth is through expositional preaching. All right? This is preaching that works from the text of Scripture outward, explaining and applying the Word of God rather than from the application or the topic back in. All right? There's a lot of preachers out there who start with, what do I want to say? And then say, all right, now i got to find a scripture that helps me to say this. That's not what we do here. That's not real preaching. Real preaching is expositional preaching that starts from the scriptures and works our way out from there. Now, that's not to say that you can't select a topic to preach on and then preach that topic. I did that this morning. That's what this series on the Christian life that we're working through now is. It is a topical series, but it is a topical series preached expositionally. We are taking biblical topics that come from the text and preach them that way. We do this because God's word is what we need if we are to grow. All right? And that means that we need churches that preach the whole counsel of God. That means that I'm going to take books and preach the very first verse to the very last verse. And I'm going to cover stuff that is hard to preach. I'm going to cover stuff that's hard to hear. Scott always loves when I get to the end of books, especially New Testament letters, where he says, I can't wait to hear you apply how Paul's talking about, hey, make sure you give greetings to Sylvanus. You know, I can't wait for you to apply that in some way. All right. But so you can't skip those parts. They're there for a reason. And so that means that there are going to be times that you hear me preach things and you're going to go, I don't think I like that very much. Well, I understand, but it's God's word and we have to have all of it. That's the only way that we're going to grow. There are things in the Bible that we naturally want to avoid, things that are challenging and difficult for us to hear and believe even as Christians. But these are the things that we need. The culture, the world, or even our own hearts cannot tell us what we truly need. That's one of the things that I take issue with, with our current fascination with self-love and all of those sorts of things, because all of those thoughts are rooted in this idea that I really know what I need. No, you don't. No, I don't. God knows what we need, and he has given us his word to help us have what we need. And so we can't focus those things on what we think we need. We need to have those things coming from God's word. As we study his word, we see his love for his people, his plan throughout history, the glory of the gospel, and we see how God corrects us. 
Just a couple weeks ago, I preached a sermon on conversion. And I said some things in that sermon that I know some of you have never heard before. And I know that because some of you have told me that. I've never heard that before. When I preached through Titus and I specifically said, hey, Christian, you're allowed to drink alcohol. I know that was something some of you had never heard before. Those things are in the Bible for a reason. They're for us to know. And it stirs our growth. It spurs our growth by helping us to recognize things that we did not already know and things that we need to understand. All right. The next way that the church spurs growth is by having gospel doctrine. The more that we understand the truth about God and the truth about us, the more we grow. God's care and character become more evident while our sinfulness becomes more apparent. We see him choosing a people and then working with them through extraordinarily difficult circumstances. We are encouraged by seeing the big picture, the plan, the meaning, and our trust in him grows through these things. I once had a youth as my, my youth group in California, we went through first and second Samuel. And some of that stuff, as you adults well know, is pretty horrifying. And they kind of asked me, like, what are we supposed to get from this? Like, how, how is this supposed to be helpful to us? And what I said to them was, you know what this tells us? It tells us that no matter how terrible we are, God keeps his promises. That even though the best of us, the man after God's own heart, failed so magnificently, God's promise still stood. That's an encouragement to my heart to know that as I read this book filled with sinners doing horribly sinful things, God is not bound by their sinfulness to say, well, I guess my plan isn't going to work. His plan stands because he always stands. And that's what gospel doctrine does. We see all of these things intersect in the gospel and our trust in him grows, right? We see Christ as the fulfillment of those promises. We see how we have an inability and how Christ makes it happen. And a church that is clear on the gospel makes these things known to us. The next way a church spurs growth is by having a biblical understanding of conversion and evangelism. When we realize our own sinful state, our own sinful spiritual state and our dependence upon God for our own Christian life, you become really grateful. When you really understand that it is God who spurs the growth in you, that it's God who brought about new life in you, when you understand those things, it's really hard to get smug. It's really hard to think, man, I'm really something special, right? When you really understand what the Bible says about these things, you have to take a step back and recognize, I am so grateful for the mercy of God. Because apart from that, I would still be in my own sinful state, never with a hope to get out of it. Hope becomes more certain to you because you realize that your hope is not based upon your own faithfulness. Like we talked about this morning, if, if our holiness was left up to us, we would all be in a whole lot of trouble. But because our holiness comes from Jesus, we rest in that. We understand more of what a true Christian is and how we become one by the grace of God and by his grace alone. And this understanding leads us to grow because we must trust in God in our evangelism. The next thing is a biblical understanding of church membership. Living as a Christian means being committed to one another, meaning that we live as community centered around Christ. 
By dealing with one another on a regular basis, we are forced to deal with areas of our lives that we would otherwise avoid. And because of our committed love for each other, we pray and reflect on these areas and repent. So for example, if you are the kind of person who is easily frustrated with other people, being in community with other people means you're often going to be frustrated. You are confronted with your own shortcomings and forced to work through it. You could retreat and say, I'm just not dealing with people. That way I won't get frustrated. But are you really rooting out sin in your own heart if that's the way you respond? See what I mean? Being with people forces us to deal with our own sinfulness. And even when things are not going well in our own lives, when we may not be seeing growth in ourselves, we are still encouraged as we see God's work in other people's lives. We're encouraged as we see older members caring for, uh, other older members cared for and new members maturing, right? We see these things taking place and that encourages us. We see other people living out their faith well and it helps us to be encouraged even when we are not encouraged with our own progress. That's why we do life in community. And being rooted in a church also encourages accountability. Doing life together with other Christians means you're probably not going to have a life that you are free to sin in whatever ways you choose because there are other Christians who are going to say, hey, I've noticed this pattern in your life. Can we talk about this? This, this seems like a problem. Can, can we address how we can work on this? That's the idea. When you have a biblical understanding of church membership where you are in community with each other, where you are accountable to one another, where you are helping one another to grow, all of these things take place and it spurs growth in ourselves as well. A biblical understanding of church discipline helps with this as well. Because when proper discipline is neglected, it gets significantly harder to produce growing disciples. Because what happens is you have examples of the faith that are not really examples of the faith, but people see them and think that they are. And so they say, well, I'm going to model my life after this person. Well, that person is in unrepentant sin and the church should have dealt with it. But now, because they haven't, examples are now unclear, models are confusing, and so you don't really know what to do or what to believe. The other reason is that weeds often have a bad effect on plants around them. Right? Brother Mike, you plant a garden. If you just leave weeds unchecked in your garden, what's going to happen to your plants? Are they going to flourish? They're going to choke them out. Non-believers who need to be disciplined by the church, present in the church, absent discipline, have a negative spiritual impact on those around them. Partially because they're just a drain and partially because people who are not growing spiritually, who are probably not even saved, are always convicted by the presence of spiritual growth around them. And what they do is they lash out at it to try to restrain it. Because if other people around them are growing in Christ-likeness, it makes it all the more apparent how unchristlike they are. And so the way to stop that is, well, let me drag everybody else down with me. Then we all look the same. Nobody will notice how unchristlike I am. That's how weeds have a negative impact on the plants around them. All right? And God's plan for the local church does not encourage us to leave weeds unchecked. 
And, I'll, and, and listen, here's the reality, folks. Growth is commanded by God for the church as a whole, as individuals and as a whole. But as long as church discipline is neglected, then the church is filled with non-believers. And no matter what happens, a non-believer is never going to get more holy. Ever. It's never going to happen. Because an increase in holiness comes as a work of God. And God is not increasing holiness in those who are unregenerate. Okay? So if we as a church are commanded to grow, then church discipline is necessary because a non-believer in our midst is never going to grow. All right? A biblical understanding of church leadership helps us to grow. When God raises up leaders in the church, he brings people into our lives whom he has called to be our spiritual leaders. And so what that means is as a church, we gain practical role models. We gain godly vision. These things help us to grow both as individuals and as a group. And God has equipped teachers and Christians that we can follow in order to help us grow. I talked about this when I preached through Titus, how the calling of the pastor is to do, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, to say to the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, bear in mind, right? You are imitating someone who is not Christ. Okay? So when you imitate your pastors... You are not imitating Christ. You are imitating us as we imitate Christ. So that means that where we struggle or lack in Christ-likeness, you should be mindful of that and not say, I'm going to emulate my pastor in those ways specifically. Right? Look for Christ-likeness and emulate that. And here's the other thing. You don't only look to your pastors and emulate them in Christ-likeness. There are others that you emulate as well. If you have Christian parents, you should emulate them in Christ-likeness. If there are other believers that you know, whether in your church or elsewhere, that are particularly Christ-like, emulate them as well. Notice how they deal with certain situations. Notice how they deal with difficult people. Notice how they deal with family conflict and say, wow, I really appreciated how they did that. That seemed really Christ-like to me. And I'm going to model how I handle that situation off of how I saw them do it. It's not this weird, vague, nebulous concept where you're just kind of like, you know, follow me as I follow Christ and I'll just kind of figure it out as I go along. It's about observing specific things. And how are you going to observe specific things in people's lives unless you actually know them? Spending an hour with someone on Sundays or an hour and a half is not enough to actually know them. Even if you do it for years. There's still a whole lot of hours. I'm not doing the math. There's still a whole lot of hours during the week that you're not with them. And so you have to be a part of each other's lives. But specifically as it relates to church leadership, you have to seek to follow that example. All right? Another way is the biblical understanding and practice of prayer. Putting what we learn from the Bible about prayer into practice will help us to grow as Christians. Because what it does is it helps us to understand that the God of the universe has spoken to us in his word and wants us to speak back to him. And that is very humbling and encouraging. We're also reminded that prayer is a privilege bought for us by Jesus, which causes our love for the Lord to grow and increase. 
As the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, our desires become more conformed to his and our prayers change. We find ourselves less concerned and praying less about our circumstances and praying more about God's purposes. Hmm, Sounds familiar. Some pastor probably preached on that. Praying together in our local church shapes and fuels this growth in our hearts, reinforcing our love of what's best and of what it is that God wants. And we tend to start living our inner life more truly and openly before God and fellow believers, right? When we're praying about things of significance, we're praying about things of, of God's purpose, it helps us to be less guarded and hide less of who we are. It helps us to be more open and vulnerable with one another, which is a sign of spiritual growth. Being willing to be seen as less than perfect by other people is a marker of spiritual maturity and growth. To know, hey, listen, I'm just an imperfect sinner doing my best. All right, that, that kind of prayer practice helps us to see that. All of this flows from a growing understanding of the Bible teaching on prayer as we learn more and more of how to pray from our church family around us. Again, this is something that you can emulate from other believers. Listen to how they pray. When they pray, emulate the way that they pray. When you hear them pray, you think to yourself, man, that was a really, that was a really nice prayer, a really meaningful prayer. Don't necessarily listen to the eloquence of the prayer. Listen to the vulnerability of the prayer and emulate that. It's not about the fancy words that you use. It's about what it is you're praying for. Okay? And the last thing in here, the last way that the church spurs growth, and there are other ways, but these are the ones I wanted to highlight, is a biblical understanding and practice of missions. It helps us to grow in Christ because it reinforces our understanding of the plight of those around us. It keeps, the gospel, so it keeps the gospel solution front and center in our thinking and in our life together in our local church, right? When we have a focus on rightly sharing the gospel with those around us, it reminds us, A, that sinners are all around us, and B, their only hope is the gospel. And because the, the only hope is the gospel, it keeps the gospel front and center for us, too, We don't get sidetracked by other things, by other models of spiritual growth or church growth. We recognize it's the gospel first, last, and everywhere in between. It pulls us out of ourselves and helps us to look at God's grand purposes and reminds us to look up at God himself. And it helps us to reset our expectations and our desires. Studying God's worldwide gospel plan gets us into God's word and it challenges and shapes the ways that we think about our lives and the lives of the church. So that brings us to the next thing, which is hopes for growth. Ways that I hope to see our church specifically grow. All right. And so here's some some ways that we see discipleship within the church. The first thing is pastoral discipleship. One of the callings of the pastors is to disciple the church. All right? And so there's ways that this happens. All right? First of all, it requires the pastors to get to know the members personally. So before you leave tonight, I'd like all of you to write down your full name, your social security number, and your bank card pin code for me. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, huh? No, not yet. I'm working I on it. I already wrote you a check this morning. <laughs> no, you spelled my name wrong. 
He spelled it Evans Creek Baptist Church. (laughs) But it requires pastors to get to know members. And so that means spending time with you. It means having conversations with you. And And sometimes that looks really focused. Sometimes it looks like, hey, let's talk about this specific thing. Sometimes it's just getting to know you. Just getting to hear your life story. Hearing about what it was like for you when you grew up. Hearing about your conversion. Hearing about those kinds of things. I love getting to do membership interviews with people. Because I get to hear about how the Lord saved you. And what your life has been like. And so that's one of the things. is Getting to know members personally. And one of the things that I'm trying to get better at. Is by asking is asking some specific questions, and so if you hear some of these questions from me, don't get freaked out. Don't be like, "Why is he asking me this stuff?" This is intentional. This is me trying to get better at discipling our church members because this is an area that I'm trying to grow in. <laughs> questions like, "How have you grown in your understanding of the Christian life since we talked last time?" How have you grown in your practice of the Christian life? In what particular areas do you feel that you need instruction? Are you disappointed in your own pursuit of holiness? And if you are, explain. These are questions that are not intended to make you feel like the pastor is asking you really probing stuff to make you uncomfortable. These are questions to help me know how I can better shepherd you. Right? When the shepherd shepherds his sheep, he knows which sheep are particularly ornery. He knows which sheep are particularly needy. He knows which sheep are particularly self-sufficient. And he shepherds them accordingly. Right? Parents, you who have children, your children are all individuals. You likely don't parent all of your children exactly the same. There are certain things that you do in the same way for all of your kids. But you've got some kids that are more emotional than others, some kids that are more logical than others. And so for some kids, you might need to explain to them the nature of what they've done wrong. Other kids, you just give them the look and they break down in tears. That's Evelyn and James, respectively. Evelyn is the one that wants to ask me a million questions. James is the one that if I just say, James, immediately. And so in the same way, I want to get to know you, not because you're my children, all right, but because it helps me to effectively lead and disciple you as a pastor to know these things about you. And it also leads for me to be able to pray for you specifically. How can I pray for your increase in holiness? How can I pray for your increase in Christlikeness? I want to be able to do those things for you. All right, so that's pastoral discipleship. But there's also member-to-member discipleship. All right, this is not just for pastors to do. All right, I know sometimes we tend to think like, oh, it's just the job of the pastor to do these spiritual things. Nope. Wrong. Members are discipling other members. We're tasked with this from Scripture. And so this is an intentional relationship in which we seek to do spiritual good for someone by initiating, teaching, correcting, modeling, loving, humbling ourselves, counseling, and influencing. All right, so here's what this means. All right? This is something that is specific and intentional. This is not just, oh, I got this buddy of mine and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disciple him. This is something that you actively seek out to do. So if you are a more mature Christian, if you've been a Christian a while, you're more advanced in your sanctification, you should be seeking out someone 
who is younger than you, who is some, someone that is less advanced in their sanctification, that you can help walk this path. You should also be looking for someone who is further along than you, that can help you walk that path. All right? And there are some things to consider when you seek out these kinds of relationships. All right? One of them is, are they a family member? All right? Sometimes family relationships are the most natural discipling relationships. Parents and children, right off the bat. Very natural discipling relationship. None of you are going to have the same level of relationship that I have with my children. All right? I see them far more than you do. And so... That's the, that's the immediate place to start, is with a family member, all right? We also need to consider their spiritual state. Are they a more mature believer than you? Well, that's going to be a really difficult discipling relationship for you then, okay? But you also need to consider, are they actually a believer? You can't disciple a non-Christian. One of the things that happened when I was in high school, there was a young lady who... Uh, she decided that she was going to be a missionary dater. She was going to go out and she was going to find non-Christian boys to date and she was going to disciple them right into the kingdom. And then once, once they got saved, she'd dump them and move on to the next non-Christian. And you know what happened? Those boys left the church like that. Because it wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. You cannot disciple a non-believer. It doesn't happen. All right, another thing to consider is the person's gender. Because this is a close, intimate, intentional relationship, it is a very, 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 very unwise idea for a man and a woman who are not married to enter into this kind of relationship. Okay? Did I, did I use enough varies there to convey my point? Okay? Who are not married to each other. To each other, yes, correct. Correct, yes. I'm like, they can be married to other people. No, they can't. Wrong. No. It's also good to consider age, okay? So, me as a grown adult man, it would be one thing for me to have a discipleship relationship with Andrew. It would be a totally different thing for me to have a discipleship relationship with, say, Dutch. Okay? Probably not a great idea. All right? Something to consider there. Okay? Another thing is, are they different from you? And here's what I mean by that. It is tempting sometimes to surround ourselves in our relationships with people who are just like us, who are our same race, our same social status, our same way of life, our same way of thinking, all of those sorts of things. But the kingdom of God is not made up that way. Okay? And so it's good and right for you to have these kinds of relationships with people that under any other circumstance, you probably wouldn't be that close. Okay? I love you guys. I am so grateful to be here. But as a city boy at heart, I have very little in common with y'all other than Jesus. Me and Mr. Earl do not have much in common. Love him to death. We're very different people. Okay? And that's a good thing. Hey, you know what? I'm glad somebody does. But that's a good thing. Because our relationship conveys to the outside world that there is something about our connection that is more than superficial. 
We're not united together over the things that most people are united together by. We're united together by the blood of Jesus. And so when you're, ha- when you're considering what these kinds of relationships would be, it's a good thing to pick somebody who's different from you. Get a little bit outside of your comfort zone. All right? Another thing to consider is teachability. It's going to be really hard to disciple somebody who doesn't ever think that they're wrong, who is very unwilling to learn, because a big part of a discipling relationship is being able to confront sin and help them to move past it. And if they're unteachable, that's going to be a really tall order. Okay? Um, When you are considering someone who is going to disciple you, you need to look at faithfulness to teach other people. Are they willing to expend of themselves to do that? All right? Someone who is unwilling to help other people is probably not someone who's going to disciple you well. And the last thing, and this is just a, a practical thing, proximity and schedules. Proximity and schedules. If you live three hours apart and one of you works days and one of you works nights, well, that's going to be really difficult to have any kind of real discipleship relationship. And so you have to consider, like, do our schedules align well enough to actually make this happen? Okay? I had all these on there and I forgot to put them up. Sorry. Um, All right. So the last thing is corporate discipleship. So this is something that we do all together as a whole body. All right. And it's something that we covenant together to do. So uh, some of you are unaware of this, but we have actually been in the process of remaking our church's constitution and bylaws. In fact, our our little committee just had our last meeting today and we have finalized the draft. And so y'all will be getting that next week. But you're getting a sneak preview of it tonight because one of the things that is in there is a new church covenant that we as church members, when we come into this church, that we are covenanting to do together. And so you have that here on your on your, uh, in your little packet, there on that last page, page three, is the church covenant. And so I want to run through this with y'all tonight really, really briefly and just talk about what these things mean and, it's, and show you how we disciple our members through this covenanting together. All right. As followers of Jesus Christ, we joyfully and thoughtfully enter into a bond of mutual, mutual edification, fellowship, and accountability with one another. We have repented of our sin, trusted in Christ as our Savior and Lord, and been baptized as true believers. We will faithfully participate with this church in worship, prayer, study, fellowship, and the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We will use our spiritual gifts for the common good. Through our involvement and even sacrifice, we will seek to illustrate to our families and a watching world the immense significance of life in the body of Christ. In addition to the regular gatherings of the church and in the spirit of a true disciple of Christ, we will diligently train ourselves and our families in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, seeking to develop Christian character, knowledge, and skills. We will work toward doctrinal unity with a humble and teachable spirit. For this reason, we are willing to be taught according to the confession of faith, which this church believes to be an accurate summary of biblical truth. Where there is a disagreement or a lack of understanding... Regarding doctrinal convictions, we assume the liberty to ask questions and engage in edifying discussion. We will reject all heretical beliefs and practices using scripture as the final authority. We will accept and fellowship with all members, 
regardless of race, gender, background, social status, or level of education, since all are of equal value in Christ. We will pursue peace with all people, especially with other believers, always being slow to take offense and eager to reconcile. We will shun gossip and divisive words, knowing that they are destructive to Christian fellowship. We will seek to live a life that is above reproach. We will be just and honest in our dealings and faithful in our responsibilities and commitments. We will abide by the standards of sexual purity and ethical integrity as taught in the scriptures. We will seek the preservation of marriage, knowing that God hates divorce, and we will submit to biblical regulations regarding divorce and remarriage. We will watch over one another in love. We will remember one another in prayer, help one another in sickness and distress, promote one another's spiritual growth, restrain one another from sin, and stir one another up to love and good deeds. We will submit to the church's discipline and lovingly assume our responsibility to participate in the discipline of one another as taught in Scripture. If we are offended in connection with a disciplinary matter, we will seek resolution within the church. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to this church for its general ministry and expenses, the relief of the poor, and spread the gospel throughout the world. We will dedicate ourselves, our money, and our possessions to the cause of Christ as faithful stewards, avoiding all forms of greed. We will seek the salvation of our families, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and acquaintances, and people of all nations. We promise to remain faithful to this church and membership. If we must leave, we will unite with another true church. In summary, we will love the Lord our God with all our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We will love others as Christ first loved us. We will not allow our weaknesses and failures to deter us from our intention to abide by these Christian standards. We will pursue holiness through genuine repentance and persevering faith in the one to whom we owe all obedience for time and eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a covenant that we would take together as Christians to say we commit to live these things out with one another as well as holding one another to account to doing these things. Okay? That's the idea behind a church covenant. And a church covenant is a means of corporate discipleship that we as a body hold each other to this standard. Okay? All right. The importance of good growth. Our growth brings glory to God. That's why it's important. First Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Matthew 5.16 says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Our growth brings glory to God. And the more we grow, the more our lives are influenced by scripture. Second Corinthians 10.15. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. All right. This helps us to remember that our growth as a church cannot be measured by things that are tangible, recordable, demonstrable and comparable. Things like attendance, baptisms, giving and membership. The primary marker of true Christian growth is an increase in holiness rooted in Christian self-denial. And so the church should be marked by a vital concern for this kind of increasing godliness in the lives of its members. As God's people are built up and grow together in holiness, they should improve in their ability to administer discipline and to encourage discipleship. The church has an obligation to be a means of God's growing people in grace. That's why Peter closes his second letter with that imperative that we saw earlier. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And so if we are to grow as individual believers and as churches, we must sit under the word. We must pray for the Holy Spirit to, to, to work in us and to weed the gardens of our hearts. This spiritual growth is not optional. It is vital because spiritual growth indicates life. Things that are alive grow. All right? If, if your plant stops growing, it's because it's dead. All right? That's the whole thing here. And so if our spiritual growth <laughs> stops, that means our life is lacking here. All right? So that's the importance of good growth. Growth in the right way, in the right direction, under the word, is what we're aiming for. All right? And so then the question is, what if we don't grow? What if we don't grow? As individuals, specifically. So you may have heard people use the phrase, a carnal Christian. All right? It comes from a way that the King James Bible translated a verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Uh, but, I, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The King James Version uses carnal Christians there. Um, here's the thing. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. All right? What Paul is doing here is shaming the Corinthians by speaking of them in this way. Calling them infants in Christ is his way of saying, you guys who claim to be so spiritually mature are really just babies. Okay? People use that phraseology to say, well, they're <coughs> saved, but they're not growing. They're Christians, they're saved, but they're not increasing in godliness. All right? A more modern way that people talk about it is they say, well, you know, they're, they, they, they gave their lives to Jesus. He's just not Lord of their life yet. Okay? Those statements don't work together. To be saved by Christ is to be growing in godliness. To be saved by Christ is for him to be Lord of your life. You can't have one without the other. Okay? What Paul is doing here is he is pointing out the reality that this cannot be, all right? You cannot be spiritual and people of the flesh. You can't live differently than you are professing, all right? So here's the, here's the reality that we have to reckon with. Someone cannot be truly saved if they have not truly repented and believed, if they are not showing evidence of spiritual fruit and growth. It's not about being perfect, it is about a heart that intends to seek the Lord. Okay? That's the thing here. So when we ask ourselves, are we growing? Are, is our church growing? Are the people in our church growing? It's not about seeking out perfection. Like we're not saying, oh, well, they sin, so clearly they're not growing. How do they respond to that sin? Do they respond in repentance? Or do they respond by saying, well, it's okay. Nobody's perfect. It's all good, you know. I'm saved. I got my fire insurance. Well, that's, that's a totally different issue, okay? And so that's the marker that we have to look for. If we don't grow, it means that we're likely not saved because things that are alive grow, all right? All right, so that's all I've got for tonight. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray right here. I'm gonna ask the Lord to bless our food. And then I'm going to open up the floor for questions. And so 
Uh, feel free to get up, get some food. I'm not going to move. I'll sit here for a little while and I'll answer any questions that you have. We can have some discussion over dinner. That's totally fine. But I don't want us to have this drag on really, really long and keep people from getting to go home. All right. Father, thank you so much for the things that your word has taught us tonight. I pray, Lord, that they would bear fruit in our hearts, that we would grow through what you have taught us here. Father, the things that you have shown us in your word. I pray, Father, that as as a pastor here, Lord, that you would help me to be faithful in seeking these things for this church. I pray, Father, that you would help me to do my role well, to, to handle my responsibilities well in discipling this people. Father, please bless this food and our time together, that they would be an encouragement and strengthen us, Lord, and that Christ would be glorified. And we pray this in his name. Amen.